Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the 44th episode of the RIT Podcast. Election Day in Ontario is now less than two weeks away and the last of the two leaders' debates is in the books. But the polls suggest nothing much has been happening in this campaign, or at least not much that has moved public opinion. So to talk about the latest from the Ontario election, I'm joined today by David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data, and Sabrina Nanji of Queen's Park Observer. Hello. Hey, Eric. Hey, Eric. Um, so I think I, we should probably start with the news that came out really recently, uh, Sabrina. We heard from both Andrea Horvath and Mike Schreiner testing positive for COVID-19. At least at the time they were recording this, Stephen Del Duca and Doug Ford were not. Um, but yeah, what, what's what's happening with that? Yeah, not not so great for the NDP and the Greens. You know, we're exactly two weeks out from Election Day and they've essentially been benched. So they'll be campaigning virtually. Uh, and probably pumping up a lot of their candidates instead. I mean, we're now getting itinerary for Diane Sachs from the Greens, uh, you know, one of their star candidates in University Rosedale, of course, represented by the NDP currently, historically a liberal bastion. So uh, no doubt this is going to this is going to hurt them a, a little bit, I think, uh, before they can get out on the hustings again. Stephen Del Duca uh, t- tested negative this morning. He's feeling fine. Uh, and Doug Ford, it was a little bit... Uh, unclear if he tested or not, but I got confirmation and, and he, he did not take a test, but he says that, you know, per the guidelines, he's no longer a close contact of uh, Shriner or Horvath. You know, they were all at the debate on Monday night uh, in close quarters. It was a rather small studio. You know, they shook hands. They were kind of yelling at each other at some moments. I'm sure we'll dig into all of that. Uh, but Doug Ford says he's, he's feeling fine uh, and he'll, he'll still be out, you know, pressing the flesh and kissing babies. So look out. <laughs> With with the yes, uh, speaking moistly, uh, if we remember. Anyway, uh, but yeah, if you think about Aaron O'Toole in the last uh, federal election campaign, campaigning virtually didn't seem to help him that much. David, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. What kind of impact it could have? I just think you know, with two weeks to go, um, any anything that takes you know momentum away, especially maybe for Schreiner. Although we'll talk about you know what the polls are saying about his debate performance. I think many people, at least watching it, thought he did pretty good. Um, not great that he has to be off the trail for a few days and, uh, same with Ms. Horvath. So I just think it's just bad timing and, you know, I don't know how long they can go without actually being around people now, because I think some of the, the rules are, you've got to sort of isolate until you test negative. So, um, yeah, I don't think these are their star assets and when you have to take them off the field, um, it's got to hurt a little bit at least. Yeah. And obviously we hope all the best for them that they'll recover quickly and and be able to get back out there so but uh, David you mentioned it now you have some polling data it's it's still in the field but you have some results that you can share with us some post debate polling because we've been waiting for it there's been a couple of polls that came out this week but all of them either were almost entirely or mostly um, done before the debate so what are these post debate numbers that you have Fresh out of yeah, the field. so exclusive for the RIT audience here. Uh, we were in the field uh, Wednesday and Thursday. We're going to continue. We've got 891 interviews done. Uh, we weighted it so it's representative of the population. And um, the indications are the debate doesn't seem to have had any impact as of yet. Uh, on the horse race, we've got the Tories ahead by 11. Uh, actually increased their lead over the Ontario Liberals, 37 to 26. Hmm. Uh, with the NDP at 25, all within the margin of error movement, but that that gap has opened up uh, with the Greens at 5%. Um, you know, uh, how people feel about the leaders, not much movement, Doug Ford about even, Andrea Horvath about even, still more people view Mr. Del Duca negatively than positively. 
Um, on, on debate specific questions though, we asked two questions or three questions. Um, about 37% of people said they watched the debate or watched at least some of it. Um, How does that compare to earlier, past uh, campaigns? Probably a little, you know, it's not I, that you, high because yeah, we know okay. that the, the ratings probably were not that high, but you know, this is what people perceive and, and 28% though said they heard nothing about these debates at all. So right. that shows you that, that they, they barely broke through for, for more than half, for more than a quarter. But when we asked people who either watched or heard about the debates through the news or through, through friends or, or colleagues, um, and we asked, who do you think did the most to win your vote? Doug Ford came well ahead at 36. Uh, for him, Del Duca at 19 and Horvath at 17, Mike Schreiner at 10. And then we ask, who did the most to lose your vote? And Doug Ford wins that one as well at 32 for, for Mr. Ford, uh, 20 for Del Duca, 19 for Horvath, and uh, six for, for Mike Schreiner. So, you know, pundits like me said, Mike Schreiner had a great night. He did really well. Um, you know, it, it shows the power of a filter and, and, and partisanship in terms of how we uh, consume these debates. But looking at these results and how they have played out in past elections when we've asked the exact same questions, my sense is no one really won the debate, but perhaps because nobody won the debate, Doug Ford won the debate because uh, his numbers held and um, there doesn't seem to be any movement away from the state of the race that we were seeing before the debate. Yeah, I remember in the federal campaigns, when you ask these kinds of questions, uh, you know, uh, Yves-Francois Blanchette, and, you know, he would score very well, and then there'd be a bump in the polls for the block, or Jagmeet Singh in 2019, yeah. and there was a bump. Uh, but when you have this sort of even, where you have nearly as many people who say you won the vote, or won the did the most to win the vote, as did the most to lose the vote, it, does, it doesn't suggest we should expect some big surge or movement in the polls in the coming days. Yeah, it basically means... That if you went into this debate uh, leaning towards Mr. Ford, you thought Mr. Ford won the debate. If you were leaning towards another candidate, you thought he lost and vice versa. And what probably happened, because there was some back and forth between Mr. Del Duca and Ms. Horvath, some liberals were saying, well, she lost. And some New Democrats were saying he lost. Um, but at the end of the day, it really moved nobody away from where they started uh, when the debate began. Sabrina, how does that line up with maybe the perceptions you've heard from partisans, people who are involved with the party, you know, who kind of did their own kind of grading on how well their leaders did. Does it, how does that line up? Yeah, well, I think um, part of me is a little depressed about the, the viewership there because of course, you know, this is our, our bread and butter for us political nerds. Um, but, you know, I think every camp, you know, every leader kind of did what they were supposed to do and every camp is feeling pretty good. Uh, you know, Doug Ford, for the most part, kept his cool. He stayed on message. I think, you know, the Tory war room was pretty happy about that. Uh, you know, Del Duca didn't get angry, but he was a bit defensive, you know, kind of positioning himself almost as official opposition, uh, which we know, you know, with the NDP and the liberals kind of jockeying for second place, uh, th they're feeling pretty good about that. Uh, one liberal insider told me that if the only thing people remember about Stephen Del Duca, who is still relatively unknown to the public, is that he has two daughters and they go to public school, then they're just fine by that. Uh, you know, he's obviously trying to paint himself as the fresh face of the liberals and get away from some of the unpopular decision making, some of that political baggage from the, the former Wynn government. Um, you know, I thought Andrea Horvath, uh, you know, everyone was kind of making a big to do about Doug Ford's binder and bringing his notes, which the debate consortium, you know, uh, was it was against that and, and Ford's team insisted on, on that he had his, his little cheat sheet there. 
but I don't think the general public cared too much about that. Uh, and it almost seemed like Andrea Horvath could have used um, a binder. You know, she was a bit shaky in the beginning. Uh, no major breakthrough moments for her. Um, but again, I think maybe the bar was a bit higher for Horvath because this is her fourth time on the debate stage. Uh, you know, there's really there's really uh, a, a high bar for her, higher expectations, not a lot of room, you know, to, to mess up there. Um, and I think, you know, for the most part, what we were saying, you know, in, in the media observers uh, is, is that Shriner kind of came out on top. This is the first time a lot of people would have seen him, um, gotten to know him, uh, you know, as, as a green person on the debate stage. So, so that's a big feat in itself. But he was probably the only one that actually was able to get under Ford's skin. You know, I think Ford was even visibly turning red at, at one moment. Uh, and, and he had these powerful uh, uh, times where he, I thought one of them was when he asked, you know, have you actually spoken to a nurse lately uh, when, when Doug Ford was kind of, you know, talking about his healthcare promises, which, you know, there was a big protest of nurses outside too. So uh, I, I think, you know, I, I'm a little bit surprised actually that, that Shriner didn't get a bit of a bump, but what I've been hearing anecdotally from people is that, you know, I really want to vote green, but I, I feel like it's a wasted vote. Uh, I think we've talked about Eric, you know, the per vote subsidy can uh, if you get 2% of the vote in Ontario, uh, you get a per vote tax subsidy, so you get some more money. And that goes a long way for political parties to you know, push for issues, have re more resources. So I don't think there's ever a wasted vote, but um, at the end of the day, there were a lot of fiery exchanges, but um, we kind of got a lot of talking points too. So uh, it, it's, uh, I guess we'll see you know, how much it can move the needle once all the polling starts rolling in. Yeah, well, I mean, from David's numbers, uh, I guess it suggests we shouldn't expect too much. It, it is, you know, Shriner at least was above water on those numbers, so was Ford. So maybe it suggests that they did the most to help themselves. And I, I suppose you could imagine that, that Ford did the most to shore up his own supporters. Shriner did the most to maybe expose himself to some people who wouldn't have thought of voting green. And what you mentioned about uh, having a chance to win, I find is interesting because I, I'm sure there's lots of people who might have seen Mike Schreiner said, oh, he's a nice, he seems nice enough, or I like, you know, his passion on this or that issue, but he's got no chance in my riding. Uh, but maybe in some of those parts of the province, he can now make the case in a handful of ridings that, you know, maybe here, this is the green, uh, the green candidate that has the best shot. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, David, Ford, uh, during this campaign, uh, you know, he's been pretty low key. Um, you know, he had the binder. Uh, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, debates are a pop quiz. I don't think people are expecting that you have to know everything off the top of your head. But, you know, it, he's been running a very, it seems controlled, low key, low drama kind of campaign. And it seems to be helping. And is he tapping into a lack of engagement and just in a way, almost trying to ensure that people don't start paying attention to this campaign because then he can just cruise? <laughs> I think to some extent, um, if you're paying if you're paying attention, it's because you think there's something at stake and the, the stakes are higher. And my read of this data right now is, you know, there's some people uh, who really don't like Mr. Ford. That was been their view since the moment he was elected. Um, and nothing that he's going to do is going to convince them otherwise. But what he's done effectively is not to. Uh, take this metaphor too far given the pandemic, but inoculate himself from what is typical conservative, uh, progressive conservative liabilities in the province, which is cuts to public services, which is social conservative issues sometimes gets them into trouble. And if you look at the failure of conservative 
uh, leaders in the last 20 years, from John Tory to Tim Hudak, it's because they fall into that trap. Doug Ford won not by default in 2018, but largely by default because Kathleen Wynne was so unpopular. This time, he's going to win likely because, in my view, if he does win, because he's actually where more voters at least want their, their, their government to be, and there's no clear alternative to that, right? And so if anything, this debate, although the goal, I think, for either Ms. Horvath or Mr. Del Duca was to try to consolidate those anti-Ford voters around one of them, um, they actually fought each other more sometimes than they did Mr. Ford, and that left people, I think, more divided between them. Um, and that's given Mr. Ford the advantage. So I, I think his low-key, don't make waves, um, you know, speak in generalities, uh, be boring in a way, which is very undug Ford-like, is, is helping him. And it's really helping him among older voters who, you know, is when we talk about a, an 11-point lead province-wide, it, it, it masks the fact that he's almost at a 20-point lead among those over the age of 45, 43-26. And that is the silver bullet to win an election when you know, at least for now, turnout might be lower, interest is lower, and those are more reliable voters. So it, it, it means he's even more likely to win a majority um, if he can hold those kind of numbers among older voters. Sabrina, you've uh, scrummed Doug Ford. Uh, you know, you've gone to, uh, you've called in, I guess, now uh, over the last couple of years because uh, no one was there in person, but to those press events. Does it make sense as a strategy for him to reduce the amount of time that he's kind of talking, answering questions? Uh, do you find that this is smart for him or because like Doug Ford, like uh, as David said, you know, trying to be boring. Um, I don't know. Does that work? Well, I, it worked for Bill Davis, right? He said bland works and, and it did uh, for the former Tory premier. And I think, yeah, that's certainly like clearly what the strategy is for the conservatives this time around. And, and it does seem to be working for them. You know, uh, we've had some cute Fordisms throughout the pandemic when he was up there every day, almost, you know, at the height of COVID, uh, you know, the cheese slipped off the cracker, calling people yahoos. Um, he has, you know, put his foot in his mouth. He did, you know, uh, Del Duca was kind of forced to back check him on the fly when he was saying things like they, the liberals want to, you know, uh, uh, vote against the gas tax cut, which, which they don't. Um, and so he has put his foot in his mouth before, but just people that I've been talking to, they're kind of very forgiving. They, they think, you know, he, he's just one of us. He, he makes mistakes. Uh, so I think, you know, in a way, uh, being unscripted does work to for in Ford's favor, you know, it's, it's a, an endearing quality sometimes. Uh, I, I think the joke he made about, um, you know, uh, the Canadian bobsled team like seemed a bit canned. I don't know if that one was in the binder, um, but it, it certainly seems to be working. And, you know, the the liberals and the conservatives are the only ones who are not inviting media. Uh, like the, we get their advisories and, and where they are. And, you know, sometimes they'll let us ask questions, but we're, they're not on the buses like with the NDP. But I don't know if that's actually helped the NDP very much, you know, the ability to have a journalist there every day, like uh, on the campaign trail, making the stops with the leader, because I guess, you know, the thought was that that might result in more media coverage, obviously. And I don't know if they've been able to grab as much headlines uh, through that, or if that's made a big difference with them. Uh, so, you know, for Ford, though, it, it kind of means that they're getting more local coverage on the stops that they're at. It's not necessarily the Queens Park Press Gallery uh, following you everywhere. Of course, you know that we are doing that as much as we can, but uh, certainly I think that that 
is a strategy. And and yeah, to, to David's point, to kind of have the uh, Horvath and Del Duca battling it out with each other and Ford kind of trying to stay above the fray. I mean, Del Duca said it himself that anytime Horvath attacks him, uh, Doug Ford smiles. And I'm sure that that entire war room is is grinning about, you know, some of that happening. And, and Eric, yeah. if I could just add, I think one of the things the opposition or the, the liberals, New Democrats, the Greens, to some extent, are having a hard time doing is how to actually make something stick to Mr. Ford, right? Um, like in the same survey, and we've been asking this on every survey, we asked people, which of the three leaders, I mean, it was only the three, you know, have certain characteristics. Um, Doug Ford wins on every single one we ask from, you know, closest to my values to most willing to make him, you know, admit when he makes a mistake to, you know, toughest and strongest leader. Um, and, and that's a signal to me that, you know, he has a, a brand that is quite strong, um, that has been able to withstand all of the criticism. And it feels like to me sometimes that, you know, you, you watch, particularly Ms. Horvath during the debate, I think it was pretty obvious that she got so frustrated because in her mind, and I think in a lot of progressive voters, particularly activists, they can't, they can't fathom how Doug Ford is still the premier of Ontario. They, they, they can't fathom that he ever got elected in the first place. And so they don't know how to compete with that, right? And so I think that's a big part of the problem. Like if I told you know, it must drive people crazy when I tell them that, um, you know, who has the best vision for the province? Doug Ford beats Andrew Horvath by 16 points, right? 45 to 29 with, with Del Duca in 25th. When I ask even more, who's the most competent leader? Doug Ford wins by 21 points over Andrea Horvath, right? And, and so the, they can't even imagine how that's true. And, and it's hard to then compete against it if, if that's the case. I, and I think we also see the same kind of thing with federal conservatives and Justin Trudeau. Um, so it does go both ways, right? Because that to me has seemed to have been one of the blind spots for the federal conservatives is that they can't understand why someone would like Justin Trudeau in the same way that a lot of New Democrats and liberals wouldn't understand how you could like Doug Ford. Uh, and if you can't get by, uh, you can't get around that blind spot, um, then you, you can't reach the people who don't think Doug Ford is that bad of a guy, but maybe you could be convinced not to vote for him because if you set your hair on fire to say that he's the worst premier there's ever been, you're, you're going to make people be like, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, he might have some problems. He's not that bad. You already almost make sure that people go on the defensive. Uh, and I think you see the same thing with Justin Trudeau. Um, let's move on to um, Stephen Del Duca because you were just talking about, David, those personal numbers. Has he done anything in this campaign to improve them? Well, I I think there's a difference between has he moved them and has he done anything to move them? I think he is, I think, you know, again, my opinion, I thought he had a pretty good debate. I thought he came off as calm and, and reasonable, but those numbers haven't moved. Um, there are still more people who view him negatively. Um, a lot of people don't really know who he is. He, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just quickly going to look at best premier. Um, you know, He's still in third when it comes to best premier behind by three points behind Andrew Horvath. So he hasn't moved any of the key metrics. The only thing he's got going for him is that he's the liberal leader in a province that typically votes liberal. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's a measure of just how little engaged most voters are or prospective voters are that he hasn't been able to make an impact. I mean, we talked about this, Eric, on the last podcast we did just after the debate. People were more likely to be searching for him um, that night, in large part because they didn't ever think about him before, and they saw him on that stage for the first time. 
but I don't think at least the early evidence is it's made much difference in, in, in how they're going to vote for, if anything, if there's any evidence from the surveys that the liberals are moving in the wrong direction, their vote share might be shrinking, not growing. Um, as some of, you know, some of the other polls done just before the debate suggested might've been happening. And he's also the only leader out of the four that I'd say is in danger of not winning his own seat. And Sabrina, you went to Vaughn Woodbridge and talked to uh, people and I think you got a lot of shrugs. <laughs> yeah. So like, obviously the big caveat that I'm going to preface this with is that I was just door knocking um, around. It's, it's called the uh, Piazza del Sol Plaza. There's like a gelato shop, La Paloma. So I kind of was just hanging around there in Woodbridge. Uh, it's not, you know, as in-depth uh, as, as the kind of polling that, that David does, of course. But it was a really tough time. Like I was around for two hours hanging around anyone that would talk to me. And I couldn't find a, an outright Del Duca supporter. Um, I've since, you know, heard after I published a story and spoken with some who, you know, think he's great, have been supporting him along the way. But uh, I didn't see any Del Duca signs. Uh, there were a lot for Tobolo. Um, and, and generally, you know, uh, people, people in that riding obviously know Del Duca because he was, he represented them before 2018. And they, uh, you know, they, they gave him the boot in, in 2018. And now it's represented by conservative minister, Michael Tobolo. I think um, 338 Canada had the polling at, that's a, a coin toss, that riding there. Some of the internal conservative polling suggests that Del Duca won't, won't win that seat back. Um, but what I was hearing from voters is that, uh, you know, the, the things that they don't like are his move to make COVID vaccines mandatory for students in schools. And I think uh, that was a, I mean, I guess bold, if I can put it that way, a bold promise, um, but it was kind of a visceral thing. Like one father of four. He has four kids between 10 and 18. And he said, you know what, like I voted liberal in the past. I was really considering it. And then they proposed these mandatory COVID vaccines for students in schools. Um, of course, you know, there are, are the same exemptions that, that regularly apply, but, but that just threw me away. He told me he, he wasn't a fan of that. Um, and, you know, there, there are people, of course, there who are willing to uh, give him another shot. But I think that it was a pointed move for Del Duca in the debate when they were asked, you know, do you have any regrets? And he sort of admitted, you know, uh, the past liberal government and himself included in Von Woodbridge, they didn't listen to voters. And, and that was a lesson learned. So I think, you know, that that could end up working out in his favor. Um, and I'll just tease a, a little uh, baby scoop that I have coming out in Queen's Park Observer. Uh, I, I went to go take a look at the Facebook ads uh, that, the, that all the parties are running. And the only ones that are targeted from the Ontario Liberal, Liberal Party are in Vaughan Woodbridge. And so some people are telling me, you know, that's a clear sign they're worried. Other people are telling me, well, of course, you know, the party is going to be targeting the leaders riding, um, but it seems like that could cause a lot of problems for Del Duca if he doesn't win his seat. Uh, I think I might, may have mentioned before on the pod that uh, just the Liberal Party's own rules say that if you don't win the, the premier seat, you get a leadership review. Uh, if Del Duca formed official opposition, I think of course the Liberals would give him another shot. That would be a, an impressive move for him. But if he doesn't win his own seat, uh, I think that could mean, you know, especially his leadership uh, would be in trouble too. Yeah, I just just I have lots of family in, in Vaughn Woodbridge and uh, having spent a lot of my time and youth in that riding, I would say he's going to have a hard time. I think it's a it's a it's the kind of riding that, that really, I think, appeal like Doug Ford appeals to them. And I 
think even though Stephen Lecce represents the riding to the northeast-ish, he also plays big in that riding in terms of, you know, the two Italian um, Canadian candidates, Michael Tobolo. And, and I think, so I, I, I'd be surprised if, if unless Stephen Del Duca wins the election, I, I mean, becomes premier, um, I think he's going to have a hard time. That means there has to be a pretty big liberal wave to, to, to unseat the, the Tories in that seat. Uh, just from my own projections, I often have the liberals in the NDP um, more or less a seat or two apart in terms of the official opposition role. It would be quite ironic if the liberals fell one seat short and that seat was Del Duca's that he didn't win. Right. Right. So um, let's talk about one of the other leaders. We did mention him, Mike Schreiner. Um, I'm just kind of interested in what chances they now have for that second seat. There has been some polling, and I know, David, it hasn't really showed up in yours, but there has been a couple polls in Northern Ontario, that includes Perry Sound, Muskoka, which is very far south, but it is included in Northern Ontario. Um, and it's a riding where the Greens finish second. They have a history there where they usually get somewhere around 20% of the vote. There's no Liberal candidate because they had to dump their Liberal candidate. And that could boost the Greens who might who are being seen as really the one who can fight with the PCs to win the seat. Um, but Sabrina, do you how serious do you think it is for the Greens to win a second seat? I know they talk a lot about Diane Sachs, but University of Rosedale, I'm sorry, not going to vote Green. And if I'm wrong, people can come at me afterwards. But I don't think it's going to vote Green. But Perry Sound Muskoka, uh, you know, he's someone we candidate there that Mike Schreiner spends time talking about. So they clearly think that that they have a shot. Yeah, and that's kind of been the green strategy, right? Like pooling their resources in one spot uh, or a couple of spots where they think they can win. That's, you know, what helped Mike Schreiner get elected in Guelph the last time around. Uh, and, and we have seen him, you know, hitting the campaign trail hard uh, over in Perry Sound, Muskoka. And as you, as you just said, you know, there's no liberal competition there. I think one of the numbers I had seen floating out there was that they were polling at 20%, which, okay, is that enough to get you the seat? We'll see. Uh, but, you know, Schreiner's made the point that that used to be his numbers before too, around 20%. And, and look, he got, he won that seat. So, uh, you know, certainly they are uh, making a, a hard push for Perry Sound Muskoka. You know, there's no conservative incumbent. Uh, and so it, it's certainly more in play for them. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Schreiner, we always say he punches above his weight. And, and one of the most effective things he's done, I think, in this campaign is push the other parties. Uh, you know, I think even today with the NDP promising to get rid of tolls on the 407 for truck for truck drivers, um, the, the Greens are calling them copycats on that, essentially, because that was a Green promise. You know, the Greens were the first ones to promise to double ODSP. That's something the NDP is also promising to do now. Um, you know, we already had a costed platform from them. So it does seem like they're kind of making these last minute changes on the fly, maybe just, to, you know, to be more in contention with with the Greens. Uh, so I, I think that the chance is definitely there. But uh, province wide, the polling we've seen, like they haven't really budged very much. It's around four or five percent. Um, and of course, you know, Shiner has been in Guelph every day, you know, this uh, COVID, uh, him getting COVID, like, I guess we'll see, you know, if that how much that really hurts him. But I think, you know, having him on the debate stage probably introduced him at least to a lot more people. And, and maybe they're thinking about it more seriously now. But uh, certainly, if you talk to a green they they think they've got this in the bag. I mean, I think just, just Eric, looking at the history of that riding, the worst the Conservatives done in the last, you know, five elections, I think is around 40, 41 percent. And that was in 2014. Um, there is no incumbent and there's no liberal candidate. I think there is a chance the Greens could pull it off, but they need to basically 
basically, you know, consolidate every liberal to come to them and then get some new Democrat votes there. Um, they did well. They got 20 percent of the vote last time. You know, that's their base. They can do it. But I still think it's it's a harder riding maybe than one like Guelph, where the splits are maybe more more even. Um, and there's not a tendency to be a solid conservative riding. I think Perry Muskoka, you know, you know, I think Frank Miller and that was was the former premier and then his son, Norm Miller, took over. Um, there's a legacy of being progressive conservative for I don't even know if it's gone anything but progressive conservative. So it would yeah. be a shock, but it's not impossible. Also, the old writing of Tony Clement, if we remember um, that he was there uh, when he was a federal uh, MP. Uh, yeah, I think it is going to be tough. Uh, but you know what? Mike Schreiner ended up winning wealth by a really big margin. Uh, I think going into that election, there was expectation that he would win wealth by maybe a bit. And he ended up winning it, I think, by 20 points or something like that. He took nearly he took over 40 percent of the vote. So maybe there'll be a big wave, but yeah, it, it, it'll be the thing to watch. Um, so we'll, we'll start uh, wrapping up a little bit. We'll wrap up first though with uh, Andrew Horvath. Um, David, do you see any scenario out of this election where she is in a place to run a fifth time as leader of the NDP? I'm not in any world uh, understanding why she would want to. Um, that's up to her. Um, maybe not actually up to her too. I, I can't see it. Look, I, I, I look at this and say, you've been leader of this party now for almost, or just over 13 years, 14 years. Um, you still are kind of hitting this wall where you're not breaking through. And I think you have to, you know, if I was Andrew Horvath, which I'm not, but if I was looking at my ability to kind of convince people, I've had four kicks at the can. I almost you know, I almost won in, in 2018, this was my chance and, and I just couldn't do it. So I, I think it is, it will probably be time for a change. I think there's, there comes the point, even though new Democrats, you know, the saying goes are typically more generous to their leaders than say other parties. Um, I think it will be time for a generational change for the party. And especially if they're not official opposition after this, if they are official opposition, Maybe there's a chance she, but I just, I, I still can't imagine she wants to do this a fifth time. Um, and, uh, and that will be probably the biggest driver in this. I think both Howard Hampton and Bob Ray ran the NDP in four election campaigns as well. So the party does have a history of keeping a leader for, uh, for a while. Um, mm. But, you know, maybe five is, is a lot. Sabrina, I know you've written about some new Democrats who were already thinking about the post-Andrea Horvath era. What would it take for that not to happen? Well, I think probably like winning the premier seat, um, the, the 901 club folks, you know, the guys that want to, um, you know, start pressuring her to step aside at 901, the minute polls close. They're, they're saying that, you know, she, she kind of already had her shot too in 2018, you know, like why couldn't they hold Doug Ford to at least a smaller majority, uh, you know, there, of course, change election. Uh, everyone was, you know, kind of tired of the liberals uh, after 15 years. We know that. So there's obviously, of course, a lot of factors at play. But I think it's still rare that, you know, any leader would get five attempts at this. Uh, and of course, if they lose ground to the liberals, I think that's going to incense a lot more uh, new Democrats as well. And uh, like I said, you know, there, there's a high bar for her and, and the dippers that I'm talking to, they really believe in their party and their policies and what they're putting out on the table. And 
they're kind of laying this at Andrea Horvath's feet, like their ability, like they're not able to really move the, the poles much like we're seeing now. And, and they're saying, you know, we just can't win with her at the helm. So uh, the, the new Democrats I'm talking to aren't happy. Uh, I think, you know, they're saying we're basically waiting out Horvath. Um, and so, you know, there's only two weeks left before they can turn this around. Uh, as David pointed out, you know, she tends to poll better than her own party with, I guess, you know, in second place for people seeing her as best premier. Um, and so her being sidelined now because of COVID, not being out there, you know, talking to people where she's a little more natural than we saw her during the, the debate. Like she was doing this weird thing where she would smile after everything she said, like she would be talking about something very serious, like deaths and long-term care and then, and then smile after like she, I think she's a lot more personable when she's one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with a, with a person in real life. And so certainly this is going to, um, I think hurt her as well. And it's such a Horvath focused campaign for the NDP too. Um, but yeah, I think that if she doesn't get the premier seat, her days will be very numbered. David, I'll have a, just a closing thought from you. Um, you know, you've done polling in lots of campaigns. There's two weeks to go. Things can happen in the last two weeks of the campaign. Do you see anything that suggests something could happen? Or do you, when you look at your numbers, do you feel hmm. like it's going to just kind of cruise through election day? Well, only because if I say it, it will <laughs> become the opposite. But no, I look at these numbers and I, you know, the debate if there was going to be a chance, because I did think they, uh, some of the, op, you know, the leaders hit Doug Ford with effective arguments. The question is, can they execute them um, and make the, and scale them really, right? Scale them and get people to think about it. Look, I look at, there's one question we asked on the last survey that we've asked again, and the numbers haven't changed. And that is, if Doug Ford gets reelected, do you think a number of things are going to get better or worse? Things like public education, healthcare, uh, your cost of living, not enough people are saying it's going to get worse if he's reelected. Um, and so that tells me the desire for change isn't there. Ontarians typically reelect a government after its first term and, and, and all points, everything's pointing to that. Um, and, and Doug Ford's numbers are, are still, still the most popular leader in the province. Um, and so unless any of that changes, which I think in two weeks is hard to do when nobody's paying that much attention, I shouldn't say nobody's paying attention, not, not enough people, are nearly paying enough attention. Um, I'm still on my 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 uh, my best estimate is Doug Ford's headed to another majority. Well, we know that 100 of listeners to this podcast are very engaged with the election, uh, sticking around for you know 40 minutes or so of discussion about an election campaign that hasn't exactly gathered a lot of you know enthusiasm and attention from anybody. But you know we're still engaged in it, and uh, you know two weeks, lots can happen, and We'll chat again, I'm sure. And uh, thanks to both of you for coming on. And thanks also to David for doing double duty this week. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye, everyone. Thanks again to David Coletto of Abacus Data and Sabrina Nanji of Queen's Park Observer. You can find her newsletter at qpobserver.com. There's been lots going on outside of Ontario this past week, as I'm sure you've heard. Jason Kenney received only 51.4% on his leadership review and announced he would be resigning. That means the UCP will be holding a new leadership contest to choose his replacement. Alberta is scheduled to go to the polls in the spring of 2023, so it is going to be a busy political year in the province. 
There are also two resignations announced this week that will force by-elections in the next six months. Sven Spengemann, the Liberal MP for Mississauga Lakeshore, is quitting to take a job with the United Nations, while Ryan Miley, outgoing leader of the Saskatchewan NDP, is also stepping aside. Miley's has been a very competitive riding in Saskatchewan, and Mississauga Lakeshore could prove to be the first test, and a tough one, for the new leader of the Conservative Party, as the by-election does not need to be called until the fall. All right, that'll be it for the RIT podcast this week. Just a reminder that during the Ontario election campaign, I am releasing weekly bonus episodes of the RIT podcast that are available to subscribers of the RIT.ca only. So if you'd like to listen to these episodes, please head over to the site to subscribe if you aren't already a subscriber. Okay, until next week, enjoy the long weekend, and thanks for listening.